This is a conversation with uh, Robert Scare. Hi, Bob. Hi. How are you, Serge? Uh, so you're a neurologist who's very interested in how the human brain works, including in uh, cases of trauma. Yes, that's become my my sort of late life uh, interest and passion in the field of study. Um, you, um, how did you come to that? Well, I had an unusual career in, in neurology. I did about 11 years of clinical private practice in neurology. Um, and then I had the opportunity to take over as medical director of a rehabilitation center, which I did for 20 years. I ran uh, and supervised many programs, inpatient, uh, brain injury, pediatrics, uh, and chronic pain during that time. And of course, Patients who require rehabilitation have suffered a, a disability and often was associated with life trauma, such as severe accidents or, or that sort of thing. And I um, became interested in the, the psychological balance and also the symptom complexes of people who have suffered uh, physical injuries through a traumatic event. And I I realized eventually, of course, that a great deal of this wasn't just emotional. It had to do with the the way that the emotional or limbic brain works in relationship to our conscious thinking um, human cortical brain. And there's a dichotomy between the relationships in these two very important and complex parts of the brain that explain things that we see in, in patients in, who are in clinical counseling for uh, trauma-related uh, emotional disorders. And so I, I dived into the physiology of trauma and discovered lots of things that have to do not only with uh, the, uh, how the brain operates in trauma, but also the medical, physical syndromes that are confusing to doctors that I think are, t are directly related to trauma. Okay, so, um, um, you know, and you wrote uh, several books about uh, trauma for uh, professionals, for doctors and therapists, and right now you're in the middle of writing a book uh, for a more general public about how the brain works. Um, and uh, maybe that uh, conversation could be about how the brain works, the emotional brain and the thinking brain, and what happens in trauma. Good. Well, that, I think that makes sense. This book that I'm writing is, as I say, for lay people. Um, it's for lay people who are willing to stretch their mind and imagination and face some challenges, because it is a lot about the physiology of the brain. Uh, but I hope that, that it's put in a way that is accessible to the lay public. And uh, we'll cover some territory that uh, is unusual uh, in that uh, it's really the theories of the things we just talked about that are uh, different, new, and um, may or may not be very helpful and pertinent. Good, good. So maybe we can start with the emotional brain. Okay. Well, the emotional brain... Uh, the limbic brain or the mammalian brain, as it's called, is is an evolutionary uh, part of the brain that uh, developed as mammals evolved from reptiles. Uh, it overlies the, the the reptilian brain, as we call it, the brain stem, 
which is basically um, has to do with eating, procreating, and uh, perpetuating the species without much else. Um, the mammalian brain uh, contained pathways which change the reptile brain in a number of ways uh, that allowed mammals to survive on the Earth. One of them is um, it conserved energy because uh, the mammals survived evolutionarily because they were faster than reptiles. And they could pursue faster, they could escape faster. Speed and energy uh, expenditure was a huge part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, mammals also evolved in a fashion where they cared for their young. A reptile basically has a uh, lays about uh, 500 eggs and about uh, 5% survive. So they use volume to accommodate for the fact that the mother or the parents of the uh, babies don't take care of them. And mammals um, couldn't afford to do this because of energy expenditure. And as a result, uh, the, they evolved a relationship between the mother and the uh, young that involved nursing, that is feeding the young, and caring for and nurturing the young. Uh, a whole new concept uh, which was required because, again, the need for energy uh, conservation. As mm-hmm. part of this, the uh, mammalian brain evolved uh, not only bonding between the mother and the infant, but bonding between the adult members of a, of a group. And of course, um, mammals run in groups. They run in herds, they run in prides, flocks, gaggles. In other words, they run in social uh, organizations. Again, for the same reason, to conserve energy through bonding and assistance within a group. As this evolved, it began to involve the what we call emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and emotions are, again, unique to mammals. And uh, believe me, most all mammals, if you own pets, <laughs> have emotional states, as you, as you can tell. Uh, they're more complex, perhaps, than the human species, but uh, they get more complex as you ascend uh, the sophistication of the mammalian tree. But all mammals are capable of emotions as well. And so the, the mammalian brain involves parts of the brain that have to do with, number one, assessment of safety or threat. Uh, number two, uh, modulation of parts of that emotional brain by other parts to keep it stable. Uh, because of the high energy, mammals need to be in a state that's called homeostasis, which means a very smooth... Uh, cycling regulation of the basic functions uh, of the body to help you survive. Mm-hmm. The organ system, the endocrine system, the immune system, and the like. Yeah. It also involved this maternal infant bonding uh, thing, which was really the only way that mammals could bring their uh, infants into adulthood is through nurturing. Mm-hmm. And that nurturing between the mother and the pup or the uh, the infant mammal um, also had to take place between the members of the grouping that we talked about, the social grouping. 
and maternal infant bonding and uh, familial and tribal bonding are all governed by the same parts of the brain. In other words, the affiliative, empathic, connecting brain. And these features uh, are very critical because as the cortex evolved in, in, in primates and human beings, especially human beings, as we began to move into states of being able to anticipate the future and planning and judgment and insight and perception, all of these uniquely human features, we still had to layer these over the emotional brain, which although it's fairly sophisticated, is still pretty simple compared to the intellectual brain. Yeah. And of course the problem here is that we think we're in our rational brain most of the time. Human beings who are uh, planning, creating, working, uh, evolving, ideas and things like that, I think that we live in our, our uh, cognitive primate cortical brain all the time. The problem is, and there, there are theories to this, that we really have not evolved our cortical brain as much as we think we have. And in point of fact, we often are governed by our emotional brain, which you can also call our survival brain because that's the part of the brain that governs the fight-flight-freeze response, the, the responses that we have uh, that are automatic and have to do with survival. Mm -hmm. And so um, understanding that, that the survival brain, I think, is very important in understanding ourselves. And the relationship between the two uh, is critically important. And when one gets into the field of emotional distress or illness, or if you wish, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder and related syndromes. Um, one really needs to understand this because basically all mental illness has to do with uh, disruption of the cognitive thinking cortical brain by the emotional brain. Yeah. So, so when everything goes well under normal circumstances, we already uh, are much, much more under the influence of the limbic emotional brain. Um, and when there is a disruption such as trauma, then uh, it becomes much, much more so. Exactly. And uh, we call the this state that we live in in the uh, intellectual or, or uh, cortical brain, uh, we call that uh, the present moment, actually, mm -hmm. in most cases. Um, and when we're not in that state, we're in the limbic brain, even though we're looking at the world in a way that we think we're thinking, but thinking is basically uh, overwhelmed with the contents of the emotional brain. Yeah, yeah. So, so which um, is, in a way, um, say what mindfulness traditions would call the illusion. The illusion. It's exactly right. And um, this has to do with the physiology of, of trauma, the neurophysiology, how the brain operates in trauma. And it has to do with, more than anything else, memory mechanisms. Because memory uh, is the process that's corrupted in trauma, and memory is what uh, clouds the conscious brain. 
So maybe before talking about trauma per se, maybe a brief, a brief definition of trauma because, um, you know, just uh, trauma can be a car accident, can be uh, somebody coming back from war, but you want to just maybe just give a provisional def- definition of trauma. Yeah, I, I will. And I, I use an ecological model of trauma, an, animal-based. Uh, some of the work uh, comes from the work of Peter Levine, uh, who's uh, developed a, a therapeutic technique called somatic experiencing. Um, and quite a number of, of theorists in the area of trauma have adopted this model of the fight-flight-freeze response and its corruption or change having to do with the symptom complex that we not, we call trauma or PTSD. And that has to do with the basic uh, operation of a limbic brain under threat. Uh, and how that works is that basically we are constantly scanning the environment to look for opportunities, uh, but also to look for danger. And the more we are in the prey mode, uh, and prey animals are really good at this, uh, the more we are in this state of low-grade testing of the environment through the message systems of our head and neck. In other words, uh, the primary sense of smell, uh, vision, taste, hearing, uh, vestibular or balance messages uh, that have to do with picking up warning signs of danger. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the, the head and neck are uh, provided with muscles that specifically rotate the head back and forth. And that's how we uh, aim our sensa- sensory organs on the environment to pick up threat. Uh, we, we have that primitive response in our unconscious brain. What happens is that if we pick up threat, then uh, the messages uh, travel through the part of the brain that processes information for danger um, and uh, mainly activates a tiny little uh, nerve cell cell bundle in the survival limbic brain called the amygdala, A-M-Y-G-B-A-L-A, the amygdala. It's derived after the word for an almond because it's shaped like a little almond. Mm -hmm. There's one on each side in the temporal lobe, which is part of the limbic system. That center is critical to the detection of, of, um, of threat, and also it is critical to the, to the development of traumatic symptoms because it stores in memory danger messages. You learn uh, about danger based on uh, cumulative experience, and those threat messages are stored in the amygdala. Well, the amygdala sets off a chain of reactions within the limbic brain that allow the fight-flight response to occur. And this occurs by sending a message to the conscious memory center of the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the part of the brain that stores explicit or conscious memory, memory that um, we use to try to learn things like... uh, you folks who are listening to this are trying to remember what I'm saying. And in doing so, your uh, your uh, hippocampus is lit up trying to uh, process and then store some of what I'm saying. That's its purpose. The hippocampus 
will then send messages to other parts of the limbic system as well. Um, by this time, if the message is sent by the amygdala, it's a threatening message. And the hippocampus kind of gives it a conscious construct, sends it to parts of the brain that modulate and regulate this arousal response, because not every threat is real. It may just be a false threat. And we need to sort that out so we don't go half-cocked and into full fight-flight every time something arouses us. And two parts of the brain, one called the anterior cingulate, C-I-N-G-U-L-A-T-E, another part called the insula, I-N-S-U-L-A, and the right orbitofrontal cortex, part of the cortex that lies right over the uh, bony orbit of the skull. Um, interestingly, the cingulate and the orbitofrontal cortex are very important in, in human bonding, maternal-infant bonding, and connection. They have lots of what are called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons uh, help us to empathically judge the state of someone we're in contact with. Uh, and again, it has to do with bonding. These three areas, the insular cingulate and the frontal cortex, also are master regulators of the arousal system of the brain. And if the threat's not too great, it will tune it down. If it is worthwhile uh, to initiate the fight-flight response, then the orbitofrontal cortex will do that. It'll kick off hypothalamus, which starts the whole uh, process of endocrine response, that is uh, cortisol, uh, to threat, to enable the animal to adjust to all of their systems to, to escaping and surviving. Now, if that's a false alarm, the whole system is shut down by these regulatory centers. If it is a fight-flight response and you need to mobilize all of your body systems to escape and survive, then you go into overdrive. Your motor cortex is activated and you initiate the flight response. Uh, the system to uh, prepare your chemical body to deal with this is, it takes place through the uh, hypothalamus, the uh, autonomic brain. And this carries on through the endocrine system, mainly resulting in release of cortisol from the uh, adrenal cortex down sitting atop the kidney. Mm -hmm. The adrenal gland sits on top of the kidneys. And you start the cortisol cycle, and you are now prepared. Your whole body shifts into this overdrive, uh, expending energy for the purpose of survival, adjusting your cardiovascular system and making you able to get away. That's the way this threat system evolves, and these centers of the brain are the ones that are particularly involved. And so what's, uh, you know, certainly just to, to stay at the very surface of what you've said, at the very least is a sense that people can get of how these mechanisms have very little to do with thinking as we think of thinking. That's right. In fact, Generally, thinking shuts down. When you're in this state, and I'm sure some of the listeners have been in a state of acute distress and threat, uh, thinking shuts down. You don't need that part of the brain to survive. You, the, the verbal part of the left side of the brain, it's called Broca's area, shuts down. Uh, you're speechless. Uh, you don't need words to escape. Uh, the oldest parts of the left brain that are creative, uh, 
contemplative and the like, all shut down. Their blood flow diminishes. You can actually see it on a functional MRI. Whereas the whole right side of the limbic brain, the right side is the part that really does the major job of processing threat, it lights up with and blood flow and greatly increases in that area. So we're in a state of, of not thinking, simply responding. Mm -hmm. Now the problem with this uh, is if the animal is caught or if the human being is helpless by virtue of the speed, strength, or otherwise superior physical uh, qualities of the source of the threat, then the person will go into a freeze response just as the opossum or other prey animals will do so. And the freeze response is a very critical state regarding trauma. Uh, freeze response is associated with immobility. The person or the animal is, is limp. Uh, it's associated with a sudden uh, influence of the brain and the heart and the lungs and the whole body by a deep uh, vagus reptilian nucleus ca uh, called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve shuts down this arousal response, the fight-flight response. And the animal is basically immobilized and is also flooded with endorphins or numbing chemicals from the brain because if the animal or person was injured, they don't want to respond to the wound because the freeze response sometimes, in the case of an animal, will protect the prey animal because many predators uh, are attracted to the uh, animal's movement patterns more than to hunger. Mm -hmm. And if the animal is not hungry, the predator, they will leave the prey animal who is frozen to uh, survive. Yeah. And that frozen state in, uh, in human beings is what we associate with that sense of being paralyzed and numb. Actually, that's right, and we are paralyzed and numb. This, the clinical state that psychotherapists are quite, are quite familiar with, that is the state, is the, the emotional state, uh, state that we are in is called dissociation. Mm -hmm. Dissociation is the perceptual state of when we're frozen. Um, this is a rather novel concept, and uh, not all uh, psychotherapists, psychologists relate this, but a great uh, increasing number in the field are re relating this emotional state to the animal-based freeze response which has very important considerations because the freeze in mammals can be fatal. We're not designed to go into a very slow heart rate, which is what happens in the freeze eventually. Uh, and in, in animal freeze responses, uh, uh, mammals not infrequently will die in the freeze. In the human beings, this is related to what's called voodoo death, which is a, a curse being placed on a tribal member which results in uh, the heart slowing and stopping. Mm -hmm. And uh, this state is, is kind of a metaphor or actually a physiologic underpinning of a lot of diseases in human beings. Yeah. It, because trauma has a whole bunch of diseases related to it that has to do with this pathological alteration of the way uh, our body is working. So this is an important consideration um, from the standpoint of 
how do we how do we interpret symptoms of mental illness, and uh, how do we relate to the fact that uh, diseases that affect the limbic system or situations that affect the limbic system like this um, can have severe health co uh, complications associated with them. And so it's interesting because when you put it in that framework, um, it it helps explain the underpinnings of how we get um, emotional problems, mental problems, uh, coming from the fact that as mammals, um, what goes hand in hand with the slow development of um, infants uh, and uh, children into slow maturation uh, comes together with an increased emotional brain and that this is going to be subject to disruptions. That's right. It is. Um, I write a lot about this in my other books, um, having to do with several considerations. Uh, number one, uh, if we have a, uh, a lot of adverse experiences in childhood, if we have had poor maternal infant bonding, if we've had multiple surgeries, if we've uh, been abused, of course, um, we start to freeze at a very young age in response to these negative social experiences. And having dissociated or frozen as a child creates a system uh, that perpetuates itself and will continue to do that throughout our lifespan. Uh, and as a result, uh, it's increasingly apparent to mental health workers that adult mental illness, especially symptoms of what's called complex trauma, uh, which includes physical symptoms and a host of other emotional disturbances, has its roots in the early tendency for the child to be exposed to situations that cause them to freeze or dissociate even as subtle as what we call attachment disorders, where there's been a disordered bonding between the mother and the infant uh, to the extent that the infant's behavioral patterns are permanently changed. So this, this is increasingly becoming apparent that alteration of the brain physically through these experiences sets the person up for sensitivity to further threats to the extent that even trivial threats in adult life in a, in a person who has dissociated or frozen many times during their childhood uh, sets them up for a host of symptoms, mental symptoms, and a host of categories actually, mental illness. So we're beginning to look at childhood as the root uh, area for the development of this tendency to be vulnerable in our adult life because of sensitization of the arousal system, especially the amygdala. Yeah. And, and that sensitization, of course, has a survival value because it's about uh, remembering what could be dangerous. That's right. And the, you bring up the, the topic of memory in this process uh, because, as we said, the hippocampus... Uh, process is explicit or conscious or declarative memory 
memory that we use to learn things, for instance, in our in our schooling. Um, the amygdala deals with unconscious memory or implicit memory, having to do with procedures. In other words, things that we do. And this is all based on Pavlovian conditioning. In other words, we remember things unconsciously that have to do with survival through the messages that are unconscious. And these are the, often messages from the body. The procedural memory has to do with learning skills, uh, um, musical skills, uh, athletic skills, whatever thing we're trying to learn that we can do repetitively with increasing skill. It also has to do with learning how to survive because you need to have a system where you learn survival tools unconsciously. Uh, it's much more efficient. It's much more quick. Um, it, so it's how we learn what's dangerous and what's not. And we learn survival skills, basically. The problem with trauma is that when one freezes and has acquired all of these messages from the environment and from the internal body about the nature of the threat and also the memories of what the body tried to do to protect you in the fight-flight response before the freeze, these messages get stuck in the brain. Some people think it's because when animals uh, come out of the freeze response, and in human beings too, uh, they tend to have a motor response. They'll twitch, shake, or breathe, hyperventilate. They'll do an, a number of things which, if you analyze them, often replicate what their body was trying to do to escape before it froze. Mm -hmm. And what this seems to be is extinguishing these old memories and resetting the survival thermostat back to where it was. And if, if you dissociate a lot and don't come out of it like that, you'll store all the memories of the body that accompanied that experience. And these are the root cause of perpetuation of trauma in the brain and body. And, and in fact, all of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder are based on this storing of unconscious memories that keep coming back as if they're present by little tiny cues in the environment we don't even notice. So this process of memory is critical to the whole consideration of trauma. Yeah, and so it really is a corruption of memory. So the corruption of memory where the uh, undigested experience of the past is encapsulated and uh, hijacks the present moment. Exactly. That's what it is. I, I've written about what I call the dissociation capsule, which is a metaphor. It's not a state, but it's a metaphor of this uh, encapsulation of old traumatic memories from the body primarily uh, that are there to be replicated whenever a cue is accessed in the environment that reminds the survival brain of what was never accomplished in, in that attempt at fleeing and escaping a traumatic event. So maybe after talking about all the, the, the horror of trauma, maybe as a, as a way to conclude this, we can also actually talk about the um, positive part of the capacity of the brain to learn and to, to be resilient and to, uh, to learn and overcome this. Yeah, I think this whole physiological model lends itself to um, 
what kinds of therapy are needed to correct this problem? If this is a physiological problem, we can say it's psychological. Uh, psychological simply refers, I think, to affairs of the mind. But it is a brain-based phenomenon. And because this is classical conditioning, and this is a controversial thing I'm going to say here <laughs> within the psychotherapy field, though a lot of people believe it and some don't, what we need to do is, is incorporate classical extinction of body-based or somatic memories related to old trauma. Mm -hmm. We have to do that. We can do that in a number of ways. We can do it, I think, with, with guided words, but words alone won't, won't do the job. One has to use, incorporate the messages of the body. And I really think that one needs to incorporate principles that involve extinction. But that's very, there are hundreds of ways to do this. You don't simply have to ring a bell and not feed the dog many times. Uh, what you first need to find is the present moment. The present moment is a state that is achieved, again, as you mentioned, through Eastern techniques, meditation, and things of this sort. Uh, I think hypnotic trance actually is a, a bit like this, like the present moment. I think that's where the efficacy of hypnosis comes from. Meditation in, in a skilled practitioner uh, depends on finding the present moment. And in that state, you're in a state of attunement with your body, with your place, with your mind and memory. You are not besieged with intrusive thoughts of an old trauma, and that's what intrusive thoughts are. They are repetitive interruptions of consciousness by unresolved threats that are helpless because you have not found the solution. You are in a state where the amygdala is shut down, inhibited. Because, as you recall, the amygdala is inhibited by the cingulate. The cingulate comes on with attunement. Yeah. And so one of the features of, of uh, the relationship of the psychotherapist with his client or patient is to be able to establish that state of attunement. And that requires, of course, the ability of the therapist to attune as well. But finding that present moment affords you the opportunity that now to bring up anything that relates in procedural or even explicit memory related to a traumatic event and extinguish it. Because in the present moment, without the amygdala, you'll have that memory. You won't get aroused. Mm -hmm. It's like ringing the bell without feeding the dog. And that memory will be extinguished. And you can do that through imagery. And I think skilled imagery uh, is a wonderful way of extinction. You can do it through a lot of the somatic techniques that are burgeoning in the therapeutic field, many of which are arcane and hard to explain. But all of which incorporate systems of doing something that shuts down the amygdala. Yeah. And you can do this by crossing the hemispheres. When you go cross to the left hemisphere, it inhibits the right amygdala. So if you can employ methods, either tactile or auditory or visual, to uh, go back and forth between each of the hemispheres of the brain, 
you'll find periods of time in there when the amygdala is shut down. Uh, you can employ, employ rituals. Uh, rituals are habits, they are practices, generally in more primitive tribes, although we also use uh, rituals in religion. Uh, the primitive tribes use rituals, I think, for healing. Often they are run by the shaman, who is the, uh, the healer of the tribe. And they often involve auditory, visual, and somatic exercises, dancing, chanting, drumming, uh, things that have importance to the tribe in bonding the members of the tribe. And, of course, that bonding of members of the tribe involves the singular gyrus, and they are yeah. basically in the present moment during these rituals. Yeah. And, of course, they are healing their brains in this process. They've instinctually figured this out, and they do it, not with the scientific knowledge, but with tradition, and, and I think it, it's based on this physiology that rituals work. And many of the techniques that we use uh, have ritualistic components to them. Um, so ritual is another state that uh, is beneficial and useful in psychotherapy to achieve this physiological state of healing. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of things one can do that are based on physiology that create the state that can heal this process through the through these these theories we're talking about. Yes. And though the other one is empowerment, of course. Empowerment is the antithesis of, of helplessness. Helplessness is a prerequisite for trauma. You will not be traumatized if you were not helpless. Mm -hmm. If you fought off, you will probably not get PTSD. If, uh, so empowerment is another critical feature. And one can do this. There are a lot of techniques that are taught. So empowerment, one can do it through self-actualization, through verbal mantras about one's own uh, capacities and uh, ability to cope and um, empower, be empowered. So uh, empowerment techniques also mm -hmm. produce this uh, this state. Thanks, Bob. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. And so the other one is empowerment, of course. Empowerment is the antithesis of, of helplessness. Helplessness is a prerequisite for trauma. You will not be traumatized if you were not helpless. Mm -hmm. If you fought up, you will probably not get PTSD. If, uh, so empowerment is another critical feature. And one can do this. There are a lot of techniques that are taught. So empowerment, one can do it through self-actualization, through verbal mantras about one's own uh, capacities and uh, ability to cope and um, empower, be empowered. So uh, empowerment techniques also mm -hmm. produce this, uh, this state. Thanks, Bob. This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.